Welcome to the analysis.news. I'm Greg Wilpert. This is part three of a three-part interview that we're doing with Michael Albert, who is the author of the book No Bosses, A New Economy for a Better World, um, published by Zero Books. Uh, again, I just want to urge people to check out parts one and two. The first part was actually done with Paul Jay, and the second part with me. And we basically outlined um, most of the uh, vision of uh, that, that um, No Bosses outlines for a post-capitalist classless economy, what that could look like. Um, that is one that is based on worker and consumer councils, on remuneration based on uh, duration, intensity, and onerous of socially valued labor, uh, balanced job complexes, and participatory economic planning. Um, again, Michael is a longtime activist, author of 20 books and hundreds of articles, co-founder of ZNet, Z Magazine, and many other media projects, and he's the co-author of a vision called Participatory Economics, or PAR-ECON for short. Thanks again, jo Michael, for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So, okay, so we already outlined basically the groundwork for uh, what a participatory economy would look like, and so I want to do a couple of follow-up questions on some of the details and uh, issues that uh, that seem to me uh, that that need some fleshing out. And one of the first ones that occurs to me, and this applies actually to the uh, participatory planning aspect, but also to the uh, remuneration aspect. And you kind of you already started talking about it in the last segment, but I just want to dig a little bit deeper. That is um, the question of how do you prevent markets from forming uh, on the side? I mean, one of the things about our current economy is that people are being pushed, uh, especially, I mean, this is a new feature of uh, under neoliberal capitalism, really, is uh, that people are being pushed into becoming more and more self-employed to basically have their uh, own company of one, uh, the gig economy, uh, those kinds of things. And uh, for some people, it's working pretty well. For other people, it's pure misery. Um, but um, in a participatory economy, what is it? Uh, yeah, what is it that would prevent someone from, let's say, just um, staking out their own thing uh, and uh, trying to make a living that way? In other words, offering themselves to the highest bidder, assuming you know that there is sufficient, um, I should say, disposable income on the side that um, let's say somebody needs a babysitter and will start small or somebody uh, wants somebody uh, who's very good at uh, playing tennis you gave the example before not only to play against them but maybe to teach them a couple tennis lessons and and um, they just don't feel like participating in this relatively intricate participatory planning system and they find enough people who aren't that interested in, in um, participating in the consumer side of that aspect as well and they just find it much easier to uh, set up a, a bulletin board, an online bulletin board someplace, uh, let's say Craigslist of sorts, uh, where they uh, offer their services and whoever wants can come and check it out and offer to pay them for that service. Um, what I, I mean, you, the example you gave earlier were, you know, a lot of aspects might be con more controlled. In other words, you know, the, the kind of the, the productive, um, the means of production would be in some sense controlled collectively uh, in the form of a commons. But there are many jobs where that's not really required. I mean, especially in the teaching profession, uh, the consulting profession, um, somebody who's a freelance writer, all they need is a computer. Um, how are you going to uh, control for those kinds of uh, markets from forming, so to speak, spontaneously? So the idea is, I think, well, let's take the, the, the economy per 
per participatory norms is that production is done by workers' councils in industries with federations of workers' councils, and consumption is done by individuals and neighborhoods, collectives of people who consume collectively. And so the, the and those elements interact by way of what's called participatory planning, a planning procedure um, at the beginning of each year, and which then updates during the course of the year for changes. Okay, so now the question becomes, when it's put that way, um, what's to stop Joe um, or Sue or whoever, right, from saying to themselves, screw that, I'm going to operate on the side. I'm going to operate outside this norm for society um, by offering up my qualities or capacities um, for people to purchase. Well, there's a lot of things that could prevent that. So, for instance, you could simply outlaw it. You could say, look, uh, all transactions have to occur by way of uh, producer workers' councils and, and producer industries and consumer councils. And so you can't, you can't do it. Another, another impediment of that sort is um, that you can't transfer purchasing power, um, that y- you, can, you can consume, but you can only consume for things that are offered by way of the planning system, not by, from outside the system. Now, you would say back, I would think, yeah, all well and good, but I'm asking you about people who want to cheat, who want to work outside. They don't want to obey, so they want to they want to work outside. Uh, if you can't transfer purchasing power, I don't see how you can. In that case, if I'm offering some service, um, I, I'm writing a book and I'm distributing it. You know, it was one example that you gave, or. Um, I'm giving vocal lessons because I'm good at that or something. I don't know. Uh, and if they can't transfer purchasing power to me, then they would have to give me stuff. I mean, they would, they would literally have to use their purchasing power to get stuff which they would give to me. That's what the system would, would leave them as an option. Um, and, you know, do I want to risk being a a outcast, being somebody who doesn't believe in classlessness, doesn't believe in solidarity, doesn't believe in diversity, doesn't care about fellow workers, et cetera, et cetera, in order to get some stuff of that sort. Okay, so maybe I am. Um, I think that we're, we're narrowing down the number of violators here. Um, so maybe I am. Uh, but now I have to enjoy the stuff. And that's not so simple. Because we have, because participatory economics is such that incomes can't be wildly disparate. You and I can have different income. Why would we have different income? Because one of us works longer, or one of us works harder where that harder work is socially responsible and is is contributing to social output, or one of us is doing something that's much more onerous. Well, in the most extreme case, that's not going to lead to very significant uh, span of, of incomes, because there's only so much longer you can work, especially since you have to do it in, in, a, in a workplace and your workmates have to put up with it, or they have to agree to it. Um, so there's not this wide disparity of income. So I can't go around enjoying my tremendous bounty because, again, I'm Roger Federer, to use the example from last time, or he, he's too nice, he wouldn't do it. 
maybe Djokovic would do it. So uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm somebody who would try and take advantage. It's, it's hard to take advantage without it being visible. It's trivial in a society like ours now, right? Nobody knows that you've, that you have, that, that you've stolen it um, or that you've violated some norms or something. And for the most part, you don't even have to do that. You, all right. Anyway, um, so that's a reason why. So you can outlaw it. You can make it difficult, and particularly difficult by uh, preventing transfer of purchasing power. You can um, make it, di or it's intrinsically made difficult by the, the, the modest levels of disparity in income between people, right? So nobody is doing this to protect themselves. In a participatory economy, if you, don't, if you can't work, you just get a full income. So that's the way participatory economics works. So, so nobody is doing this to protect themselves, to defend themselves from pauperism, you know, from poverty, right? You'd be doing it in order to elevate yourself above everybody else in income, based upon the fact that you believe that income should go to, uh, let's say, genetic endowment, right? Uh, I'm a great tennis player. I should get more income, I think. Um, and, and the answer to the question is participatory economics doesn't say there are no evil phenomena left, right? Uh, nobody in a participatory society doesn't say that. So Hannibal Lecter is left, you know, and maybe he's still around. Um, but it makes it very, very difficult for such individuals to aggrandize themselves. It's, it's visible. It takes a whole lot of screwing around much more than participating in the economy, right? And it can't yield too wide a gap, and maybe it can't yield a gap at all because you can't transfer purchasing power. So I think those are the kinds of factors that preclude it. Um, in a transitional period, it might be more of a problem. I grant you that. All sorts of things might be a greater problem in a transitional period and have to be, you know, have to have procedures and methods for dealing with them. Let me ask you one more follow-up on this uh, in this topic because <clears throat> um, I could imagine situations. Now I'm not saying that this is going to be a, pro a real problem, but actually I don't don't think it's completely trivial because we were talking about uh, basically outlawing, so to speak, free market behavior. <clears throat> but what if you have a situation where, uh, let's say, for whatever reason, I ended up uh, buying something that I don't need. Let's say I got a bicycle and I got an injury and I don't need it. That's fine. What am I going to do with it? You know, why not just put up a sign on my front yard, say, have bike for sale, um, and um, try to and <clears throat> and let's say you're saying that it might be difficult to transfer, but maybe you know there might be some other way for people to pay me for it. Um, so uh, would still. that be a problem? No, but better still, why not have a way to do it? That is to say, why not have a way inside the planning process? Planning, one mistake that, that occurs, perhaps because of the way we present it or we, or we talk about it, it's hard not to, is the idea of a plan. So you, let's say in January you do this planning process, and at the end of January you have a plan. That doesn't mean that everybody does what the plan at the end of January says precisely, right? Your, your consumption desires may change over the course of a year, and production circumstances might change. So there has to be this continual updating, 
All right. And so you're saying, well, one of the kinds of situations that might arise is that I made a mistake. Uh, you know, I thought I wanted X and I don't. Um, I got well, it. Well, it's not just and a mistake. As the circumstances change, I might have actually taken yeah, possession okay. of the bicycle, but then need to get rid of it for some reason or the TV yeah, okay. decide that I, the TV programs are all crap and I want to get rid of my TV set. <laughs> Probably nobody wants it in that case. But in any event, um, these are... I mean, these are what I would call details, edge features, so to speak. That's what I call them. Um, the, in my view, um, uh, proposing, an proposing a vision for an economy or for kinship or for culture or for anything right, isn't providing a blueprint. And there's a reason why. It's because, first of all, we don't know enough. right? We, we, there's no way that we can know all the infinite multitude of of circumstances and possibilities, et cetera, et cetera. So we're guessing. That's okay. Maybe it's okay to make a guess, but but we should say so. And the second reason is because it's not our place, right? That is to say, why is it our place to say we should have balanced job complexes? Why do I think it's appropriate for me to say that in a post-capitalist economy we should have balanced job complexes? And the answer is because I think we should deliver, right? I think what's our responsibility to deliver is an economy, and then more broadly a society, in which people have control over their own lives, in which people can self-manage, in which there isn't class division, in which there is equity, and so on, those values. And so we want these basic core institutions consistent with all that. But on top of those institutions, there's countless additional features, right? It's, it's not as if the, the core picture of, of participatory economics, with, as you say, you know, a, a productive commons and workers and consumers councils and balanced jobs and equitable remuneration and participatory planning. That's not the whole of participatory economy. On top of that, there's a lot um, which will emerge in practice. But that is consistent with our values and doesn't pervert the whole thing at, at the jumping off point. Well, we don't need to get into the specific details. I think the argument you make against going into those kinds of specific details is actually a pretty good one. And it's one I actually want to return to, and that is the question of blueprints I want to return to later. But uh, let's get to uh, slightly larger uh, issues um, because I, I don't really want to dig into those details. I just wanted to see what your response would be to that particular detail. But um, <clears throat> one of the things that you mentioned now several times, and I'm wondering if you could maybe give a, a, a quick outline of this, is that uh, that this that this uh, vision uh, for participatory economy basically fulfills these uh, values of self-management, solidarity, diversity, uh, sustainability, and participation, and. Um, can you explain a little bit? Uh, I mean, no doubt those are the actually values that most people who consider themselves at least to be on the left and maybe beyond that would share. But how does participatory economics fulfill all of these values? Well, um, take the workplace. How does it fulfill self-management? Because it conveys um, to the workforce decision-making say in proportion to the degree they're affected. Um, if there's a work team that is basically operating within decisions that the whole workplace has made because it affects the whole workplace, but then that work team is, is doing stuff that um, to, to accomplish its, its agenda um, 
which is in light of the whole workplace's decision, but its decisions are affecting only basically itself, then they make those decisions separately, right? It's the same logic by which, you know, you decide uh, what you put on your desk at work. It doesn't affect anybody else. You can't, you can't arrange it in such a way that you can't get your work done because now you're violating the stuff that you've agreed to. But within the rubric of, of following the overall agreements of the workplace, you arrange it however you want. Same for a work team. This is sort of self-management. Right, that people have a say in decisions in proportion to the degree that they're affected. The the planning process, balanced job complexes. Let's take that. How is that consistent with self management? Well, not only is it consistent with it, it's conceived because of it. It's it it's conceived because of the recognition that if you have corporate division of labor, if some people do overwhelmingly empowering tasks and other people do overwhelmingly disempowering tasks, the first will dominate. Um, even with all the goodwill in the world, if you set up your division of labor that way, then inside your workplace, when you have council meetings and you have discussions and you have decisions to be made, it's the empowered workers who will come with the information, the empowered workers that will come with the confidence to speak, the empowered workers that will set the agenda, and self-management will be out the window. The others won't even want to attend after a while. Just exactly what we see in the real world. Uh, so that's how it's consistent with that. Um, how is it consistent with solidarity? Well, it's a little more subtle, but not much. So how do you get better work circumstances, right, as an individual? Well, you can get better work circumstances because the quality of your job is improved. Um, and that can happen because the quality of the average job complex for the whole society has improved. But it can't happen by virtue of you getting this wonderful situation independently of what's going on for others. And so solidarity begins to be a factor, right? Um, same thing for income. Your income rises not because somebody else gets less, not because you, you use your power to take from others, but it only rises because you work longer or harder, which is perfectly legitimate, right? Or because everybody's income goes up, because productivity goes up, right? So again, solidarity. Um, diversity is is not intrinsic, um, it, I don't think. It's sort of an add-on in the sense that people recognize the virtue of, of diversity. Um, it's it's why, for instance, when we, when we propose the vision, or when I propose the vision, I say, um, look, Different workplaces, we discussed this, different workplaces might decide to apportion, to, to have a different process to determine the amount that you and I get. If we're in one per workplace, it's one thing. If we're in another workplace, it's another thing. Of course, we've been part of agreeing on it, but nonetheless, there can be different approaches. That's diversity, um, partly because we don't know which is what's best, partly because what's best for one group is not best for another group, all sorts of reasons. But we don't try to homogenize everything. Um, uh, equity is affected by um, the fact that we re literally remunerate for what we believe is equitable, duration, intensity, and onerousness. But we also have a situation in which we don't have a, a sector of people who's in position, again, by virtue of being empowered, to raise their incomes. 
It's, it, it's interesting, and I often use this example. I don't know how much time we have, but um, if you take over a workplace um, and you have all the goodwill in the world and you want to institute a, you know, the seeds of the future in the present, you haven't conducted, the whole economy hasn't changed, and so you want to have equity and you want to have self-management and so on. If you keep the old division of labor, it subverts your efforts regardless of how much you believe in those efforts. If you keep remuneration for uh, bargaining power, it subverts your efforts. If you have to work with the market, that's going to work against your efforts, and you're going to have to try hard to avoid being perverted, essentially, by the competitive pressures to leave behind your values. So that's why all these kinds of institutions have to be changed in order to fulfill these values. Um, and we could go on with the other ones. Well, I, yeah, I want to move on to another big question, which is <clears throat> that you know I've seen you refer to participatory economics sometimes as participatory socialism, and other times uh, your work has been also associated with anarchism. But you've never really embraced either concept entirely, it seems. So, <laughs> why not? And how is participatory economics different from either socialism or anarchism? Well, I think. I think, this is me, I think participatory economics is an anarchist economy. Where, what does that mean? We're trying to reduce uh, unwarranted uh, disparities in power and influence and authority, class division and so on. I, so I think it does that, and I think it fulfills anarchist aspirations. I also think it fulfills socialist aspirations if we mean by socialist aspirations the things that you would likely mean by social, about socialist aspirations. But there's a problem, because the word anarchism is used in a variety of ways, and so is the word socialism, right? And so my hesitance is not so much about the underlying substance as it is about, I guess you could call it optics, that's what they call it in sports and in journalism. Um, if you call it anarchism, some people will immediately come to the conclusion that it has certain attributes which it doesn't have. And same thing for social. People will think it has central planning, or people will think it remunerates output, or etc. So sometimes you're right. I call it um, um, I guess I always call it participatory economics, but sometimes I call it participatory socialism. I, for me, it is because what I mean by socialism is not what was in the Soviet Union or what was in China and so on. And so it's perfectly, you know, it rolls off my tongue fine. Um, but then sometimes I get nervous that I'm misleading people. And the same thing for the other. That's, that's really hmm. all that's at, at stake. Um, it, might be, it might matter a lot, but it's not very subtle. Yeah, I guess anarchism is also often associated with kind of an opposition to any kind of authority, yeah. uh, um, regardless of whether it's unwarranted or not. And uh, that's, so that could be a source of confusion as well. It definitely. And I, I think that's a real issue. And disciplinary economics doesn't say that, right? It doesn't say basically anything goes. Uh, each individual decides what they're going to do, how they're going to do it, when they're going to do it what the results of it's going to be, how much they take, et cetera, from each according to ability to each according to need. I sort of like, and I always liked going way back in my past, the sort of sentiment that it, you know, that it elicits. But when I think about it as a norm for allocation and for income, it's nonsense. 
it it's it doesn't it it doesn't tell you anything and it doesn't um have a mechanism and it et cetera et cetera we could go into it if you want and so yeah you're right I, I, you know or even worse the people who will say um uh, you can't well let's do something controversial uh somebody will ask are there police needed in a participatory economy and my answer would be um well, I don't know the future, but um, my own guess is that we need a police function. We don't mean by what you probably mean by the word police, but we do need people who, are, who as part of their job, are trained to deal with certain kinds of situations and uh, adept at it, and who function in a, work, in a workers' council, and who function in light of the the needs of the constituency, the consumers' council, and so on and so forth, and we can begin to even see what maybe would be some good demands. And they'll say that's nonsense. Um, they'll they'll usurp their power or something. Um, and I will say, yes, um, I understand what you're saying, and uh, but they can't. Because in a participatory economy, they're working in a workers' council, and they're working in a system, and they can't aggrandize themselves except by physically stealing, which anybody could do, except then they have to, as we've discussed, enjoy it in their basement. Um, and and uh, what makes you say that a policeman is more powerful, say, than an airplane pilot? When you get on an airplane, the p pilot has absolute power over you. And, uh, but we don't somehow come to the assumption that that's a horror, you know, that that's intrinsically a disaster, right? And in the participatory economy, the fact that there are people who deal with drunkenness or who deal with, um, uh, you know, uh, actually antisocial behavior up to, let's say, homicide, um, is not intrinsically a bad thing. It is not intrinsically conducive to their empowering themselves, enriching themselves, or serving some elite, which doesn't exist. Um, so those are the kinds of answers. It, 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 a whole system is a whole system, you know, and every aspect sort of interacts with every other aspect. Yeah, I think at this point, it's probably important to point out also that participatory economics, the way you've proposed it in the book, No Bosses, is only one aspect yeah. of a larger transformation of society that would also involve the political system and the cultural system and, um, and the family system and so on. So, uh, and, and each so has implications for the rest. And so yeah. that's the, you know, think of capitalism with or without apartheid. It's, it, living in those two systems is different. Um, or capitalism with uh, greater or lesser uh, workers' power, i.e., social democracy, or um, you know what we've got. Uh, they're different to live in those systems. It's not as if these edge additions are marginal or of no consequence. That's not what edge means. It, it just means that they're not a part of the core defining relations. They can still be powerfully important. What if our gender vision says? for example, which I think it plausibly might, that there are, there's a certain kind of activity, call it caring activity, caring involvement um, and work, um, that is so beneficial to the personality, to the 
the degree of solidarity that can be felt by the person doing it, that we should certainly not have one sector of people doing that and another sector of people not doing that. We should, in fact, and the people who have said this have sort of modeled it on the idea of balanced job complexes. We should, in fact, say that caring activity should be dispersed through the whole population, not confined, say, to women. Um, well, if you do that, that's an implication that carries over to the economy. Now the economy has to obey that, if that's right. And, you know, th there's, there's all sorts of complexity to a real society that goes well beyond a vision and should go well beyond a vision. Um, I want to get to another issue that's often, that I've often seen raised uh, uh, as a critique of um, participatory economics, and it's kind of one that, uh, <clears throat> that Marx actually addressed as well, which is <clears throat> when he was asked what a utopian or communist society would look like, he tended to be actually very vague uh, and um, basically argued that the path towards communism needs to be defined by those who are fighting for it, not by him. Um, what's your response to this rather negative attitude towards the so-called blueprints for a better future? Now, you've said before that this, you're, what you're proposing is not a blueprint, but uh, some people might disagree with that. And how would you distinguish that? I, for, to me, um, a blueprint is going to be something, if it's pejorative, which I think it isn't, right? If it's pejorative, it's because it goes too far. So what does going too far mean? It either means it's overextended our capacity to say something intelligent, right? So we're, we're talking about all sorts of stuff that, how do we know, right? We, we haven't experienced circumstances as they will be in the future. We haven't had our personalities developed as they will be developed, in the, et cetera, et cetera. So we don't know. It's up to people then to make these choices, not, not up to us. So that's one... One thing is that we can overextend our knowledge. But another thing is we can overextend our mandate. That was what you were getting at, I think. In other words, um, the idea that I now should decide how long the workday is after there's a participatory economy. People often ask me that. Well, how long will the workday be? And I'll answer, I don't know. It'll be as long as people, as, as, as the population arrives at. Do I think it will be much shorter than now? Yes, for all sorts of reasons. But, I, you know, we'll see. Um, uh, the point is that you deliver a set of institutions in which all that stuff that is beyond us now is not beyond them later. You deliver a set of institutions which delivers to people um, the circumstances to decide what affects them to decide their own lives, to self-manage, etc. And I also, I, I have this discussion sometimes, and it, it does confuse me, because a, a person who's a socialist, who wants to be critical of participatory economics, might use this criticism. And I'll say to them, well, why do you say we don't have private ownership? And they'll say back to me, well, because obviously private ownership subverts everything. It, it, it just makes things horrible, and they'll list why, and they're, they're right, right? And I'll say, well, that's exactly the argument that I use. That's exact, I'm only doing exactly what you say is okay to do. Now, maybe I make a mistake, but I'm making the same claim that you're making about private ownership. I'm making that claim about uh, corporate division of labor, remuneration for bargaining power, say, markets, central planning, um, private ownership, etc., so I'm making the same argument. Those things 
can't be had. And now I'm being, I think, a little more responsible than you. I'm acknowledging or recognizing that somebody can say, yeah, you think you don't like those things, but they're inevitable. There's no alternative. There is no alternative. So the same person can say, I hate all that shit that you hate, but there's no alternative. So let's get on with trying to ameliorate the pain now, but then not change the system. And my answer is, I think you have to provide something. You have to provide some degree of of coherent formulation of what replaces the things you want to get rid of. So if you want to get rid of private ownership of the means of production, maybe you, you say the state owns it. I don't want that. Maybe you say the whole population owns it, which is so vague it doesn't really mean anything. Or maybe you say the same thing I do. There should be a, a commons of productive assets. Fine. When I say we shouldn't have the corporate division of labor, it means nothing unless I say, and there is an alternative, right? And here's why I propose the alternative, and here's how I think the alternative can be viable and worthy. And so I have to do that for four or five institutions, but that's all. And beyond that, uh, even those institutions, which your questions get at, um, in, in some instances, even those institutions have features that I think are calling them details doesn't minimize them, right? Um, uh, features which are critical to their successful operation in a certain situation, in a certain context, at a certain time, with certain technology developed, with certain population, etc. And that's all the edge features that are actually edge features of the economy. And then there's edge features of the economy because there's a whole rest of society that's going to impose on the economy. You know, it requires things of the economy. Um, and so my answer to the blueprint thing is we need clarity sufficient to overcome cynicism and skepticism. We need clarity sufficient to overcome the feeling that there is no alternative. But we should not overextend our attempt at clarity into the domains where we're, you know, where we just don't know enough or it's not our place. Unless we really preface it and say, this is an example of something that's possible. I'm not saying it has to be, but I'm saying it's an example. It's indicative of, of you know, what people might choose. Let me just add on, I mean, one other point that you actually made, and I think in, in your interview with Paul, which is that uh, you also needed in order to develop a strategy for the future, oh, if you don't know uh, where you're going. Absolutely. I mean, I, I don't even understand how that can't be trivially obvious to people. That, that, and it means something. So, in other words, if, if we're going to go out tomorrow and we're going to make demands, or we're going to organize ourselves in a certain pattern, or we're going to create an organization, well, all those steps, which are certainly what we do, right, and what we need to do, all those steps should lead where we want to go. And it's perfectly obvious that they don't always. In fact, they often have led someplace where we don't want to wind up. And so knowing where you want to go, at least in broad strokes, at least at this level of, I call it the scaffold, the essential elements that you know, are part of a vision, knowing that can inform what we do in the present. It can inform uh, the kinds of demands we make even but moreover how we fight for them. So let's say we're fighting for, for a higher minimum wage. You can fight for a higher minimum wage in a, in, a, in a 
in a method, by a procedure, by an approach, which is seeking the higher minimum wage, but goes no further. It doesn't lead any place else. You win the higher minimum wage or you fail to win it. If you win it, you go home. If you fail to win it, you go home. That's the focus. The other possibility is to fight for a higher minimum wage in light of an understanding of what you think real income should be. Income should, And so you're developing the consciousness that's associated with the vision, and you're developing maybe even steps that are associated with the vision so that when you win $15 an hour or you go for $25 an hour, and when you win $25 an hour, you begin to ask the question, why does the professor earn more than the person who's cleaning up the, the room after the professor, and so on and so forth. And that's building a movement which is continually seeking vision. It's, it's seeking reforms to make people's lives better and to develop consciousness, but it is always oriented toward getting where it wants to go. And you have to have vision for that. People talk about, anarchists will talk about uh, plant the seeds of the future in the present. I think it's a brilliant expression, but how can you do that if you don't know anything about the future? It doesn't mean anything, right? Plant the seeds of what future in the present? And so the, the thing that we're trying to propose as vision is needs to be sufficient to allow that, to allow current people to plant the seeds of the better future in their present activity and in their demands and in their process by which they form organizations. Instead of forming organizations that are organized like the corporate division of labor um, and that therefore elevate a coordinator class, I call it, and melt into a future in which the coordinator class is the ruling class, you create a, a process which creates organization which has balanced job complexes, which has self-management, and which melts into the kind of society that we want to create. Yeah, that's critical to the whole thing. Another thing that uh, you said that in, in part one of this uh, series that I want to uh, get back to is you said uh, that uh, you started developing this vision back in the 1960s together with Robin Hanel. And um, actually, when we look at those 20 books that you've written, a lot of them, if not all of them, <laughs> dealt with participatory economics in one way or another. Um, so my question is, uh, why another book? Why this book? How is it different, if at all? Well, I mean, sometimes I've written about participatory society, et cetera, et cetera. But um, why, this book is another book on participatory economics. But the last big one, I suppose, was Parry Con Life After Capitalism. Um, in between, there have been some books that are on strategy, on, you know, and so they put out. Anyway, why do another one? Well, I think it's a really good and fair question. Um, one answer, which is a little bit of a dodge, is why talk about imperialism, which has been talked about for not since, you know, 40 years ago, but for 200 years. Um, and why say what's effectively the same things over and over again about international relations, say, or about anything else? Why talk about private ownership still? Well, so one obvious answer is because it doesn't have widespread support sufficient to change the world. Um, and that's what you want. And so you, you try again. Um, and you try and do it in a way that's different. So for me, this, this book I was trying to do in a way that was very attuned 
to this blueprint issue, very attuned to formulating it clearly as a, an essential scaffold around which much appears. So that, and that was somewhat new. Um, and I was attuned to trying to make it as succinct as I could, it's shorter, um, and accessible as I could. But the main issue is, look, if, if, uh, if Parikh on Life After Capitalism, to use one of the books way back, right, um, was read by everybody on the planet, I wouldn't be need to, <laughs> you know, I wouldn't have to write another one. Um, and neither would anybody else. Everybody would have either come around to it or find the, that it was flawed and in fear, you know, not good. And then I either would have been writing something else or I would have been out to pasture, one or the other. But, you know, it hasn't happened. Um, it, it's strange. Um, so I, I think it's, I'm stubborn. What can I say? Uh, you know, why, why do you keep doing what you do? Um, you keep doing what you do because your goal wasn't to write a book and get income for it or, or to, you know, whatever. Your goal is to change the world, and the world still needs changing. Um, and I happen to believe that having a shared vision is really important, let's say, you know, putting it even moderately, uh, really important to developing a new world, to winning a new world. So I keep trying. Uh, I don't know how else to... <laughs> well, I think no, I think that's a perfectly valid <laughs> response. Yeah. I don't want to push you more on that, um, right. but I think it's, uh, it's perfectly valid. But um, yeah, so we're going to leave it there, uh, and hopefully um, people will pick up the book. Uh, again, it's No Bosses, A New Economy for a Better World. Uh, thanks so much, Michael, for having joined me today. Thank you for having me once again. <laughs> and thank you to our audience for tuning in to the analysis.news. If you like, uh, like our videos and podcast, please make sure to visit the analysis.news website and make a donation there so we can continue providing the service. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel and or to the podcast. Thank you. <laughs>